This is Trevor Forrest. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? Hey, Ben, I am doing okay. How about you? I am surviving on the wild streets of Sherman Oaks, California. It's uh, it's delightful, delightful it is weather wild. we're having. I saw a guy walking dogs out there. <laughs> so welcome, everyone, to the Cinematography Podcast. We have an amazing episode today with Trevor Forrest. We do have, and, and we're going to get back to this here in a second, we do have some really sad news, though. We recorded the interview with him probably two weeks ago and last weekend the director of little fires everywhere who he says a lot of great things about and talks about their process and i you know it, it will get you very excited to uh, see her work lynn shelton uh, unexpectedly passed away at, at a very young age and uh we have right here actually before we even get into our close focus we talked to trevor today and uh, this is what trevor had to say <laughs> heartbroken about Lynn's passing. I've had so many messages from the GE teams and you know we didn't we didn't know her for very long, but we all felt her love, good humor and unique way of telling stories while we were making little fires everywhere. You know, she'll be sadly missed and on our time together will be carried with us for the rest of our careers. Uh, and that's for me and and the entire GE camera team. We're all very shocked and and there's very few words to say, but she'll be deeply missed. Yeah, I'm, uh, we're we're really sorry to hear about about your loss, and you know she's a huge loss to uh, to the independent film community. And uh, you know, thank you for coming back. Pleasure. Yeah. Well, like any like very few other people I know, Lynn Shelton's soul will be in the texture of filmmaking for a long time to come. And yeah, hopefully it'll just encourage other people to be as freewheeling as she is. Thank you very much for coming back on. It's great to see you again. I wish it was under better circumstances. Thanks very much. Thank you. We'd like to thank Trevor Forrest for coming back on the show and, and kind of talking to us about Lynn Shelton. And again, when you listen to the interview, the interview was recorded about two weeks ago before uh, Lynn Shelton unexpectedly passed away. But, you know, use this as a good reason to go uh, seek out her work. She's an amazing director and uh, Little Fires Everywhere is a really, really awesome show. And uh, it's, it's fun to hear Trevor talk about how they got it to look the way they did and all of their process working together. But before we get to that, Ilya, what do you want to talk about in our George Foyt Close Focus segment? Wow, I think it's a time of uh, the world kind of figuring out a new way of doing the same old business. And there's a good analogy in that the biggest movie at the box office wasn't actually at the box office. It was on VOD. It was a streaming movie. It was a new movie. It was the sequel to the animated film Trolls. Did, yeah. you, did, did you see Trolls World Tour, the, uh, the sequel? Uh, I, I have not seen Trolls World Tour, although my son loves one of the videos that pops up on YouTube that's uh, like one of the songs from Trolls World Tour. So uh, I've seen that, uh, you know, only 80 or 90,000 times, but I haven't seen the movie yet. Well, I haven't seen it either, so you're not alone, but there have been an awful lot of people who have seen it. And the movie has raked in about a hundred million dollars uh, in VOD what? rental funds. Yeah, and so it's a hundred million dollars, and no one set foot in the theater. This prompted uh, AMC, one of the largest theater chains in the country, to issue a ban on all movies released by Universal. So uh, anything wow. from so yeah, it's like um, it's interesting though because there are some other uh, more indie productions that are getting released now via VOD that are also doing a revenue share with local independent theaters. And you can actually choose when you go to stream some of these movies, where you want that theater cut to go. You can pick the theater. Oh, and so that's whole, cool. Yeah. So it's like there is, um, well also Alamo draft house, which is an amazing theater chain. And you know, the, the guy who owns it, Tim league, possibly the most in front of being a film lover of anyone that I know of who runs a movie theater chain. They have a streaming service that you can 
go to online where, you know, basically you can watch movies. Unfortunately, I don't think it's on my Roku or isn't yet. You can't watch it on your television. You have to watch it on a computer. But they're doing the same level of really expert curation that they do in their movie theaters with movies at home. You know, to me, that that was an interesting uh, thing to see where it's like they want to keep the theatrical experience alive because and I'm trying to get through this without saying COVID-19 more than that one time that I just said it. But in the time that we're in right now, you really do wonder if if this is going on for another year, which it could no one's going to go to movies or concert venues or theaters, you know, to see plays or movies or music or anything live, anything with a large group. So how do those venues stay afloat for the next year? And on the flip side of that, you have something like what you're describing, Trolls World Tour, making kind of a respectable return in five days, in five days on VOD. You know, the question, of course, is, well, would people rather watch movies like that at home? Is that a better way to do it? Or, you know, is what are the virtues of the theatrical experience? You know, maybe the, the other question should be, though, why did it do so well right now on VOD versus all the other stuff that is available? I mean, it's new. It had an advertising campaign behind it, but uh, it, it there's also a captive audience. <laughs> there's no professional sports going on. There's a lot of uh, people yeah. craving something new. So maybe it was just a perfect storm of uh, a lot of people stuck at home, a lot of people with kids stuck at home, a lot of people wanting to try to do something like, hey, kids, guess what? Tonight we're all going to watch the Trolls movie. Yeah. Who, who knows? Who knows what it is? Well, it's, it's interesting to look at the history of the power struggle between movie theaters and television, you know, including cable television, including all versions of home video and the things that movie theaters have gone out of their way to provide to make the experience enhanced from the home experience. But then, you know, this whole time, especially in the last, you know, five, 10 years, as the screens have gotten bigger and more affordable, that people have amazing home theaters with amazing surround sound. And I would still argue and do argue that the reason that I find the theatrical experience to be better than watching it, even under the best home circumstances, is that I enjoy watching a movie with an audience. That's the one thing that that the home theater can't provide me. I can't watch. I I won't get the infectious laugh of a bunch of people laughing. I won't get the infectious scream in a horror movie of a bunch of people freaking out at the same time. It's just me by myself. And it's it's not to crap on that experience. It's just a different experience. But it is interesting to see. And you kind of wonder, Okay, well, if Universal can do it like this, like consider that they don't have to split any profit with the theater there's i'm sure that there's some fee or you know some probably sizable fees that they've had to deal with for streaming but it's not the same as you know even like the 90 10 splits that they probably do with a movie theater but the movie theater so the uh, traditionally the um the studio takes 90 percent or more on an opening weekend but then the theater charges them for basically all of their employees and the running of the theater. So the expenses come out of that. I know this is super inside baseball for people, but that's sort of how, how this money is, is kind of tabulated and shuffled around. And then of course, theaters charge you outrageous prices for popcorn and drinks and whatnot. And that's where the profit that, that they get comes from. So they basically are getting the movie, all of their operating expenses come out of the movie ticket price. And then their profit comes out of the concessions. All of that's non-existent here. And the studio doesn't have to split penny one with anybody so i don't i i I wouldn't pretend to know how much of that hundred million they would have gotten if it was a hundred million opening weekend in theaters but i can imagine that now they're probably keeping probably 95 million of it or more you know yeah i'm sure they have some vod fees or streaming fees or amazon web service fees or whatever the fees are that are associated with the the process of uh, running that transaction through an amazon or a voodoo or one of those services but still yeah they didn't have to send out any dcps they didn't have to physically send a print they didn't have to do a lot of the stuff they had to do the infrastructure that's involved in getting movies to theaters so yeah uh, it i i'm sure that there is someone already planning out trolls part three because it's only going to increase now over time. A lot of movies have what they call long tails. And uh, if this has enough buzz behind it, uh, it ha- might have really good legs. And we'll see people continuing to uh, to buy more trolls as, as we go go forward. If they Here, can't wait to a, see it. Yeah. Here's a piece of trivia that I bet you know. But question. Pop quiz hot shot. Ooh, ooh uh, I'm ready. What was the first movie that had a day and date release where it was released in theaters and home video the same day? Uh, Schizopolis? 
Bubble. You were very close. It was Bubble. It was Steven Soderbergh's film Bubble. It, it was a Steven Soderbergh movie. I couldn't remember yeah. which one though, but yeah. Steven yes. Soderbergh is always like, he's right on the cutting edge of whatever it is. He's like, he's the first yeah. one there. He's like, he's right he out of the He was the gate. first one shooting on mini DV shooting features or one of the first. He was the first one to do day and date. And I remember going to the new art theater to see bubble just to kind of be like, okay, what, like, what's this all about? And it was just an experiment. But I think that in his own way, he saw that this was kind of the future, but obviously movie theaters have been bucking this because they were afraid That's of right. exactly what just happened. Like, That's right. This, this is this is exactly what they were afraid would happen writ large that basically Universal could go out and make probably they're probably going to turn a tidy profit on Trolls World Tour and they didn't need a theatrical to do it. So if you're AMC or one of the big theater chains now, are you thinking, do we start making our own streaming service? Are we going to try to compete with the, you know, the studios who are providing our product that we're selling? How, how does the theaters move forward now they're gonna to have to pivot in some way if uh, well if this i mean is... the the first question that I, I again i keep asking is how do theaters even survive this like what's going to become of all the amc theaters and the arc lights and the alamo drafts house because you know i desperately want all of these places to survive and to keep going but the the theater that i used to work at in orlando the enzian theater like they're a smaller operation in that they're single screen and so it, they've started isn't florida open though now isn't it back florida's to open but <laughs> but the enzian theater is not run by dummies and but they started doing like a, a modified drive-in uh thing oh yeah can, yeah which yeah. it's like you know yeah that's a safer way to do it and a lot of people have been saying that the drive-ins are going to come back but i really do think that now that we all have a 4k television in our house that's you know got a massive screen and possibly surround audio so many people will tell me like well I, I don't go to the movies because i have such a great setup at home and i can make my point about why i think going to the movies is is a better experience but you know if that's what they prefer i'm not here to tell people what to prefer i'm looking forward to one day taking my son to movies and seeing movies in the theater but none of us are going to be going to movies in theaters for the foreseeable future. It's, it's going to be months, hope, hopefully only months and months before we can do it. Again. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm hopeful it will happen. I'm optimistic, but it's true that it's going to be dark days for the next several months for, for some theaters for sure. And, and all these studios ha are sitting on expensive investments that they've made hundreds of millions of dollars, sometimes even just on single movies. And, you know, like uh, Disney's Mulan, which you and I talked about was slated to be the first theatrical feature that was going to be released by a studio didn't you say it was in august yeah late late july early august yeah and so are we going to feel confident as a, an audience to en masse go into a movie theater then i i don't feel that right now but they're, they're talking know. about like taking every three seats and like you know blocking them out or something and letting only certain numbers of people sit together so i, I don't know yeah. really how helpful that is so. i mean in, in the short run obviously the safe choice is stay at home and watch stuff on vod and you know depending on what it is it might be just just as exciting i feel like something like mulan or something like wonder woman like movies like that that really use the big canvas of the big screen popcorn. i want to see those oh, yeah. on the big screen oh yeah you want the, those big popcorn tentpole movies on the big screen you want yeah. the full impact you want the chest rattling bass you want you want all yeah of and again, to watch it with an audience, you feel the crowd when you're when you're in a packed yeah. house. You you quite literally are all in it together, for real. <laughs> so well, anyway, but uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see moving forward how AMC does this. And I also feel like can AMC keep a grudge against Universal forever if Universal has movies that'll make AMC money in the future? I mean, Universal's got to make money. AMC's got to make money. I I sort of feel like grow up companies. Like yeah, understand I, that this is the way it's it's this or nothing like they can't stop releasing movies. I think that AMC basically just took like, you know, one tenth of all of their uh, suppliers and said no. And I, I can't imagine how long that's going to last. And really, when it comes down to it for like big tentpole movies, you've only really got about six real people out there so 15 20 percent almost uh, of like the big movies now they're they're cutting them out i i don't see it happening i think that amc is going to write an apology and it's just going to become business as usual relatively yeah. soon i really hope it does so ben i think we should get to uh get to that interview it's about that time yeah so here is trevor forrest the cinematography podcast interview all right, we are here in quarantine lockdown again with Trevor Forrest, an amazing cinematographer. Thank you so much for uh, joining us via Zoom. 
thank you. It's, it's great to be honest. I've been listening to your show for a while, so it's, it's nice to be part of it. <laughs> That's awesome. That's really great to hear. So uh, you definitely then already know what question I have first. Do you want to tell me? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, what do I get from a script when I read it? What do I see and, uh, and how do I get into it? I mean, I think from the beginning of my film career, which started off from my own interest in still photography and travel, and I was, a, I, was a, I was an assistant to some really amazing cinematographers who traveled the world, and actually traveling the world was the most defining part of that. So I would always take pictures, stay behind for a week or two and collect images and light and people and moments and so on. So, um, and then I would make a scrapbook out of that and I would just keep it as a way of keeping a, a document of what I was interested in. So when um, when the first film came about, uh, someone else, you know, Cole Spector turned to me and said, oh, I really love those pictures who took them. I want my film to look like that. It leads into the question that basically, you know, the world of the film is the most important part of it to me. And I think it, it, the initial part of it, because the way you see the world and where it pops off the, off the page is, is how well it's written, you know, whether it's a novel, a short story, a script, a music video, all that sort of thing, they, and you know, and often those sort of things are written in that way. They give you a, a, 30, a 30 word pitch, a hundred word pitch, and then you're in. And then once you're in that world, the detail of what happens and the people of the, of the characters and the story that happens within that world is, is really the director and the script taking you on the journey through that. But that comes back to, you know, as a DP, how are you going to create the world? And obviously you do that in partnership with a producer and a production designer. But, um, you know, so often it's how we have to recreate the world because of, you know, have to shoot nights during daytime or day during nighttime or winter during hot summers or any of these sort of things when you're trying to twist that with light. Um, and that's the thing that's really, it's always grabbed me in terms of like, this is the project to do because I feel like I can surround myself with this world either by the fact it's on an amazing location that I'm, I'm into and excited about going to, like Cuba for Una Noche, or, you know, the, the world of motherhood in Little Fires Everywhere. You know, that is a world that, as a man, I knew something of, but the deep dive we did and, and the layers we overturned and went through during the shooting of that was something that was really eye-opening and, and enabled me to make it the sort of thriller it was because of that excitement. Well, and, and you're hitting on something that I, I think is at the heart of one of the things that makes me want to do this podcast, which is where do the ideas for kind of the the grammar, the, the language, like I, I feel like part of a cinematographer's job is to take everybody's ideas that they have to take in and figure out what's the visual language the story is going to be told from and uh, sure. or told in. So where where do you find those? Like maybe walk us through an example of, of how you found one for one specific project. Yeah, uh, well, let's go to Una Noche. That was the, my breakout project here in America. And, you know, I was obviously doing different things in, in England at that time. But to come to America, and I'd been in America as a kid. I grew up on the Bahamas in an, on an island. And so when we talked about Cuba and it, a project happening in Cuba, you know, I had some some sense of the rhythm of life in that place because you know i grew up with kids who could dance before they could walk and mm -hmm. i couldn't i was from england and uh, they had a very different rhythm and i think there's a real feeling i mean at that time i was operating the camera a lot and something i do less of at the moment just because of rulings here in america but actually find any opportunity to go back to as i can but i think when i go to a location there's a certain rhythm and excitement to the story so something like una noche it's three teenagers escaping havana and the way they move they're 21 years old and i remember at lunchtime like the, the two kids would have like press-up competitions and they'd be counting past 100 or 200 press-ups and they have this energy they just cannot stop and the same when you go to a, a party in the evening, that sort of thing, the rhythm of Cuba and, and all of that was just electrifying. And so I decided at that point that really the camera had had to be moving and I had to be part of that movement. And so I'd throw myself in the flow of, of their movement. And that's really what told me how to frame, how to follow, how to find, how not to worry about framing in two or three seconds of the f and then find it again was so important to the off moments were just as important as the as the frames you found in the end uh, while operating the camera handheld or with an easy rig throughout that whole time because it felt authentic and it felt like their life and i think taking that 
idea taught well cuba taught me a lot i think that's Unanoche taught me a lot about what's important and how to find that juice in the middle of a project and what tools I can bring to that. If you feel a stranger to something, there's a curio- an inbuilt curiosity to de- dig deeper and to find and to, and to be open to ways of telling that story through that curiosity. Going back a bit, I worked a lot with uh, Mike Figgis, for instance, and you know he started as a theatre director before he then had some Hollywood success with White Men Can't Jump and a bunch of different things later. But he, again, you know, would only choose the tools that he felt were the things that were going to get him the best um, storytelling devices to capture the moments that he wanted to tell. What, what um, capacity did you work with Mike Figgis in? Um, as a clapper loader and um, because he was a photographer as well I started as a photographer and, and also as a long time before that was an assistant to some prestigious photographers like Albert Watson and Nick Knight and all these sort of fashion photographers so we had had a different conversation as a you know a, a director stroke boss and a clapper loader we'd actually talk about time of day photography you know and mike and i still keep in touch and it was not the normal clapper loaders connection to a, a great director at the time but it was wonderful to have that very open sort of um uh, artist conversation if you like i went to art school and so maybe i had art speak and we could talk on that same platform as them as as each other about that sort of thing well, uh, let's go back and, t- and talk about the art school, uh, your art school training, you know, because yeah. a lot of your work is stylized. A lot of it's music video work. And I definitely see the I mean, obviously, everyone who goes to art school is going to have a different experience and have a different vision. But I see like oh. a real specificity in the choices that are made in your work. So did you start out aimed at being a cinematographer or were you more interested in, in other art? Yeah, I think um, wanting to become a cinematographer came out of like a fear of loneliness Uh, because Mm -hmm. at art school, you're on your own, you're painting, you're in your room. I was at Birmingham at the time in this amazing building, the Ruskin building. Um, They kicked us out of there and we were working in these warehouses. So I decided to make an exchange scheme for the school so that I could get the hell out of there. And we went to France. And so again, we found ourselves in these beautiful buildings painting and my studio at that point was very small. So I ended up starting to take photographs rather than to do paintings. And I was too shy to photograph people. So I'd go out and take photographs of people on long lenses or in places or empty rooms or lights and that sort of stuff. And then write little elongated titles if you like but it was just a way of me thinking oh what does this chair in a room in half light mean it was you know and jeremy left the room only no, never knowing when he was going to come back something like that you know an empty an empty chair and it was you know it was naive but also really useful later on because i've definitely used that trick a few times in projects i've shot so that was the shift from painting to photography and then the, the interest in film didn't really come out until maybe five years later because I transitioned through that into portrait photography and assisting other fashion photographers. Um, Nick Knight and Albert Watson were just amazing teachers of, you know, one, the craft from Albert because he could, you know, his black and white photography and platinum printing and all of the sort of tradition of that was is like carpentry you know it was beautiful because of that craft that he had mm-hmm. and then nick knight was the other person who was like the renegade just wanted to tear everything up like let's shoot everything on eight by ten polaroids and then you know scratch into it and then reinvent all of it in vfx and uh, uh. you know to make these wonderful fantastic worlds of fashion and i thought and actually some of the people that have gone on to become today's world's largest fashion photographers with people I worked with like Solva Sonsbo and David Sims and so on and so forth but I always wanted to tell more stories and I could never really get an agent because I always did different things all the time like morning light, nighttime light, shiny cars, something that looked like a science fiction film, you know, whatever I would find I would respond to and capture and would want to make stories in those settings. Again going back to this the world leading me into the storytelling I guess. But it was really only the same studio you can take stills in, you can make music videos in, and that's that's the beginning of music videos. And I wasn't making enough music videos to make a living, so I would assist people like you know Seamus McGarvey or a few other prestigious people that are my heroes and friends now. But um, 
you well, know, how, like would, how how conscious of a pivot was it? Because you were working for these amazing still photographers. At a certain point, you have to say, "Okay, I'm I'm going to go in this other direction." Rather right. than than you're not being guided by kismet. You're being you're right. being guided because you are are making a decision. Like I'm going to move into cinematography. So what yeah. was what was around that decision for you? Well, I think you know, going back to art school, it teaches you to make decisions and brutal decisions about how you're making something because it's not working. You might have like five ideas that are right in front of you and they look pretty cool, but it's not quite what you're reaching for. And I think um, it taught you to tear it all down and start again as a benefit to actually finding the end goal. And I think that's what that is. I mean, I was having a wonderful time. I knew that when you're assisting other people, and maybe this is a bit of advice for the future for anyone listening, when you're assisting other people, you're never going to be them. You're always going to be yourself. You can pick up tricks from them and you can pick up ways of, you know, navigating politics or, um, you know, how to do a night scene, what color night lighting should be and that sort of thing. But you're never really going to be them. And they may be amazingly famous, incredibly successful. You're never going to be them. You need to break some eggs to make an omelet. And <laughs> even though you ha I had a good dish of eggs right then. And, and you're right. I, I, I wanted to tell stories. And, and I think actually after having like five meetings with different photography agents and not getting anyone, I was like, I probably had something under the plan. <laughs> it's like, no one likes the fact that I do everything rather than just one thing. They can't tell <laughs> And, uh, but then I was like, what? Well, actually, people over here who make music videos love the fact you can do everything because they want to be able to pivot. And, you know, one man singing to a microphone in morning, in night, in sci fi, in horror, uh, handheld, you know, and I wanted to be that. I wanted to have hundreds of tools rather than just the one and, mm. um, and enjoyed that. And I think because you build that toolbox of things you borrow from your heroes and friends and mentors and then you're confident enough to know their process and that tool well enough to be able to twist it on its head and do something different with it then that's a huge benefit uh later to start to become yourself i think so to get into music videos how much of a stretch was it for you like what new skills did you have to pick up uh to start dping music videos I have been an assistant, and so actually I surrounded them myself with my friends who were other assistants, and they were super supportive. But to be able to lead them was one of the skills you had to learn pretty quickly because music videos themselves were moving stills. And if you could get your head around, oh, that's a great frame, let something move in front of it. Even as a music video we did on a, a, a fairground ride, the cameras were actually locked off and everything else was moving. The lights, the, the machine was flinging these, these two musicians around as they sang their song and fell in love and fell out of love in the duration of the fairground ride. You know, it's still a moving still. And so that side of it didn't surprise me or, or you know, it, it was actually like, I'm in it now. I can keep learning. I can take one step at a time and keep layering and making it more and more complex or, you know, stripping away and making it more simple. Um, but the main, uh, yeah, to answer your question, the main skill you had to learn is management and, and how to curate your team because you're only as good as your team. And to this day, you know, I really pride myself on the team because they feel like family. Like, and especially now during COVID virus, I was actually just uh, talking to my team from Little Fires Everywhere and we are literally pitching ourselves as a team. We're not just, it's not me just going in for an interview. I'm just like, I have these people. They've all been in quarantine. They're the top of their game. They're amazing operators and assistants, but we are... Yeah, we're 12 people that you can hire to do the next job when it happens next, you know, <laughs> next month, two months ago. I, yeah, I, I think uh, build your family is, is really important. And there could be a family of mentors and family of technicians. But as long as as soon as you have those people who are so good at their job from a first AC, a second AC, even your camera trainee who has everything on lockdown in terms of there's no waste, there's, there's not a lens on a truck, there's not... The system is running smoothly to your, you know, gaffer, your grips, your all of those people. Like they have this sort of second-hand uh, intuition with you. Everything is amazing, and then you look incredible because you're, you know, at relaxed, having ideas, taking the curveballs that come from left to right because of light, uh, a change of idea, a change of heart for a scene. So the family enable you to do all of that, and they just empower you to to do the best you can be and to to remember that actually, 
you know, 10 years ago, you were a stills photographer and think, oh, actually, I'm going to pull this one thing out of the back of my toolbox. And this is perfect for this scene now. So tell me about the project that you did called Noble. Noble was something that came straight after Una Noche. Uh, it was a story of Christina Noble, who started her life in the 50s in Ireland, and then as a very beautiful woman in the 60s, had a terrible relationship and had to run away from that relationship. It was so bad, she had to leave her children behind. But when she landed in Vietnam, and today is still alive and has this incredible uh, charity called the Christina Noble Foundation, and there's, I think there's 60 or 70 different hospitals that she's built through her life around all Southeast Asia. And it's really the story of her origin story of how she got to do this. But it meant telling the story of her in the 50s, the 60s in England. We shot a lot of that in Liverpool. And then in Vietnam, we had to tell the story in the 80s. So we went to Saigon, uh, Ho Chi Minh City is called now. And we, you know, we had to get rid of a lot of modern stuff, but actually and figure out how to show, shoot the 80s. Like, how do we make the 80s feel the 80s? And so um, I did a lot of tests and Kodak 5219 stock, plus these yellow filters that, I'd previously made in India with two bits of Nikon glass and a watercolor gel that a gentleman had helped me make in India in the back of a garage. We made this set of filters that was just perfect for the really hard, cold light of Vietnam, plus these tiny little lenses we got from Panavision. Um, it was all handheld, I operated everything um, in Vietnam, but that sort of gold tinge with a yellow highlight but not really affecting anything else in the picture was perfect for the 80s. And then, you know, going back to the 50s, we used, the, I really wanted to feel like reversal stock, and luckily Fuji at the time had made this amazing stock called Vivid, and Vivid was based on a reversal stock, and so it had that blue-blacks, it had that really beautiful, clean-cut separation from all the colors and, and a real punch to it. And so, but that paired with the wintry light of, in, of Ireland in January when we came back was perfect, like soft, soft light, dull gray light, light with softness to it, made with this really crunchy, crisp film stock, just took you there into that world. And I thought that that was just a... I was so proud of it because it really took you to each one of these worlds. Um, was fantastic. All on the Primo lenses as well, actually. I didn't really need to play around too much with diffusion or anything like that. The film stock did everything. And, you know, it's so sad that that's not here anymore. But I was so going to ask you if, if, if those film stocks are gone and, like, if you were making a project like that today, do you think that the digital tools that we have could get you a similar enough look? Well, the lenses I built for Little Fires Everywhere were based on the 400 tungsten uh, Fuji stock that I shot for Noble in the 60s. That was mm -hmm. one of our starting, that was the second layer of notes I gave to Dan Vazaki. Look, I want this. Because it, it makes you faster as well. If you can use one light rather than two lights, then there's, no, there's less lighting on set. There's more fluidity for the actors. There's more intimacy for the camera and then more chance of catching the moments you want to capture to tell the story. So you know, it, it comes down to those small things making huge effects to the way the story is made. So I, I mentioned this off mic before we started, but I watched all of I Am The Night. I thought it was a beautiful, beautiful show. And I was drawn to it because of a podcast I was listening to called The Root of Evil mm. that I guess was yeah. made as a marketing tool for I Am The Night, but was also just, it was the same story told a different way, like told by the people who'd lived it actually. And right. uh, it was brilliant to me to like hear it and imagine the house that uh, George Hodel lived in and all that stuff and then see it, see, see what, you know, what you shot. And I Am The Night, for people who haven't seen it, it's about the family of George Hodel, who is believed to have been the person who murdered the Black Dahlia. And he was friends with, as you said, people like Man Ray, and, and he was kind of in the art world. And there's speculation that that murder actually was him trying to do the kind of thing that the artists he knew were also trying to do and uh, just uh, going uh, infinitely too far. But did your knowledge of art or your art school play any part in finding the visuals or was is there any parallel there at all? I mean, probably one thing I do love about uh, I Am The Night is the darkness that was encouraged for us to reach for. And I think when you're working in very low light and working in those dark, beautiful situations with film as well as something that's, you know, Patty fought for too, is that you can really paint in the highlights. And I mean that by, you know, literally you're, you're placing lights just to get 
a kick or a little you know edge light or just a, a soft kind of fill that might come from some the sheen of someone's sweat but um the art history side of it was interesting mm -hmm. to me and i was like really this crime this very famous word murderer was really just reaching to be an artist it makes absolute sense i don't know if it's no one knows if it's true but it makes so much sense it doesn't matter it yeah. just you know there's two concepts linked together so beautifully the yeah i i did know about france uh hans belmer and um and man ray and you know some of we don't really push that photography it probably was a little too on the nose to then take from those artists to push back onto the film but mm -hmm. I, I understood it and i understood the surrealist element of it and maybe to, to that point you know going back to that scene where chris looks like a ghost in the recruitment office to have the uh, confidence to go yep this is the frame this looks completely surreal but actually it fits it's probably part of that understanding because Franz, um, Hans Belmer, I keep saying Franz, but Hans Belmer was a, uh, a famous German photographer who would photograph mannequins that were deconstructed and put back together again, which yeah. is exactly what happened in terms of how the body was laid out of the Black Dahlia killing. Hans Belmer's structures and, and deconstructed bodies are so similar to what you see there in the killing um and so on there's so many parallels visually but anyway the, yeah the, the art history was enjoyment into the understanding of surrealism but i think my art if there was any connection between my art um as a student and the filmmaking and and you know making films at any point is really about is the highlights and how to how to really just sort of allow people to look into the shadows and just about pick things out and you can do that so easily with film did you did you shoot i am the night on film we did, yeah, on 5219 and 5245. Wow. Um, so you brought up little fires everywhere, and uh, I haven't actually seen it, but our producer, Alana Cody, has seen it. So, Alana, you want to hop on? Yeah, uh, with little fires everywhere, what brought you to the project? So initially, uh, Kathy Atkinson, who is Kerry Washington's manager, had mentioned the project, we're still looking for a DP. I reached out to Pilar Savone, who is uh, Kerry's uh, producer and also old friend of Kathy's, and um, we had like a five minute conversation. They, they were then, by that time, they were aware of my work, um, aware of the work that I'd done with Patty and I'm the Knight. And, um, and also a piece of work I did in New York with Keanu Reeves and Anna Diamas called Daughter of God. So then I had a meeting and, um, well actually the meeting was set for Tuesday. I had this conversation with Pilar on the Friday, I think. So I thought, oh, I've got some time. I'll do some research. Luckily my wife had read the book. I had not read the book. But they did send me eight scripts, which I sat and read until my feet went a little bit numb. And <laughs> um, so it was amazing scripts by by Liz. And then I reached my wife and said, look, what do you remember about the book? You know, it's, and I could just sort of see those parallels of what and what threads Liz had taken to create the themes of the, of the TV show, because often they shift. Um, I mean, the, the, the biggest theme that didn't change, because it's all about motherhood and every part of motherhood. But yeah, I mean, how do you stretch a theme into a television show is, is kind of the before and after you get from reading the book. But my wife gave me the cheat sheet of the book, which was, I did read it before I started shooting and I had the audio book in the car, but I you know, went back to my desk and made a 60 slide keynote presentation of how I was gonna deal with the challenges of the show because it was gonna be made in Ohio. And so the world this time was this tightly wound thriller where the bad guy and the good guy, good girl and bad girl, uh, would change places like every episode. The antagonist and protagonist was like, they kept falling over each other and circling each other. And it was like, how many more things do you want to make a great thriller? And so that for me allowed, you know, gave me that sort of instinct to like, okay, we want the photography and the pacing of it can have this tightly wound thriller language to it as well as using the weather to initially set up this beautiful home-baked apple pie kind of wonderful world and have it all come crumbling down literally so that was all part of my keynote presentation and lauren nurstad was there and uh, lynn shelton was there and in fact i looked around the table there were nine women interviewing me for this job oh wow and um Luckily, I grew up with my, my mum and my sister, so um, talking to nine women is my comfort zone. And so the fact that I had prepared 60 slides, I knew that there were going to be a lot of uh, questions. And so I wanted to be able to illustrate those 
answers as much as possible as well. And um, not everyone understands like, oh, you have to you know, do this, the light in Los Angeles to make it look like winter in Midwest. And um, you can say that, but how do you show that? So luckily I, based, I, I had stills from Shelter Island to illustrate how the light would shift from summer into fall and then into winter and like the brutal hot hard cold frozen winters that those those have as well but that gave me this wonderful arc and I think because I was excited about the arc I carried that excitement into the meeting and and so I think that was what you know led to me coming to the job winning the job and then getting into it because I'd kind of almost made the film already on this keynote <laughs> presentation when, you, when you're meeting on, on a potential project to shoot, do you uh, always prepare to that degree? Do you always put together a, uh, a long uh, slideshow with, with all of your ideas in it like that? That's, that's brilliant. Yeah, I like it. It helps me. It's not always the right way, especially if you know that you're going to meet a very visual director who has their own ideas. And I mean, I actually learned the process from Patty and because Patty does this as a director, with the production designer and and for herself to build a bible for anyone incoming to the project to pick up and run with and to give a sense of continuity through the project my instinct was to take my a much bigger and you know very concise keynote presentation into that room because i knew there was going to be more than one producer in that room and from different factions or different parties and different companies and that sort of thing so I didn't know what answers I would need to have but I knew I'd need to have a lot and be able to illustrate them I do like creating I mean going back to the first film someone else I had a book of photographs that I was showing Col on a park bench and this is important to have someone go no 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 not this no definitely not this because exactly it helps you create a compass point, a, a direction with the director at that point of like, definitely not that world. Then you're heading in this other direction. Then maybe you have another still, or maybe you have another approach from something else that is something that's opposite to what they're saying. No, definitely not. It's like, you know, it's little fires everywhere. If it was going to be clean and bright all the way through, they would go, no, that, not that. They wanted it to be descending into this dark, frozen landscape because the crescendo is this huge fire and where do you want to put fire you want to put it in a frozen landscape because that's when it reacts it becomes most so i do i like to do it because it gives me a chance to not just think through the script it gives me two or three layers into the script and maybe some answers along the way but at least it gives me a, a litmus test to how i could approach it and you know, seducing a director to choose you to collaborate to do a pro to do a project. If you're a good photographer and you're a great communicator, then that's also a great way to kind of sell yourself. And you've done a lot of work, which shows passion. And I don't think any, I think anyone who wants to hire anybody wants to see that they have passion for their project. And you know, spending two days putting that together is uh, is a some degree of passion, I suppose. Yeah even knowing the questions that they're going to ask you, like even kind of saying like, I've thought through the questions of how to do what you want to do. And here's, here's what I've come up with, you know, even if that right. isn't what you do, even, even if those aren't the ultimate solutions, it at least shows them that you're thinking how to, how to accomplish what they need you to accomplish. Yeah. I often joke like, you know, the DOP is the director of possibility sometimes nowadays <laughs> because you know, you're, and it, it works the other way around because as DPs, we're only allowed to do what we're asked to do, really. It's not like we, we don't instigate projects and that sort of stuff. So we do have to fit into something, any, any project we do, either a director's vision or a director's needs to fill the gaps that they don't have or mm -hmm. um, they, they just, you know, and, and, and we do everything from very little to just like light the scene and go and read the newspaper to create this entire world and, and make you know, Hancock Park in August feel like Shaker Heights in mid-January. So wow. I think, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's that's the exciting thing going back to my beginnings of like, I wanted to do everything. Didn't want to just photograph like the single light beauty that Nick Knight does these incredible images and he really only uses like two or three lighting setups. And he's been doing it for 20 years and doing it incredibly beautifully, but I'm just unable to do that, you know. So for Little Fires Everywhere, you ended up shooting with another DP. So what was that yeah. like? How Did you guys collaborate a lot? Yeah, I, I mean, I think going back to what I was saying about I Am The Night, where I you know, wanted to really get under the skin of Matt Jensen because he had really built um, with Patty 
and Patty's Bible, you know, it was going to be L.A. Noir. It was paying homage to a well-known genre. He had built that. And then he had built, he'd chosen the lenses. He'd chosen the filters for nighttime. He'd chosen the type of lenses in terms of like mostly wides, close up and much more personal rather than long 200 mil lenses. Tony Scott kind of style from way back. So there's a bunch of things that are set up. And then as a second DP, you're coming in to use the tools that are set up. What's amazing is about what Dan and I put together in terms of a package, we created these lenses. And what's re- I, I watched Jeffrey do some really beautiful work with lenses that we created in a completely different way that I had done. But actually, it, it still enabled him to not have to worry about the continuity. And so, yeah, I mean, I... We, had, we shared an office. I was in prep sort of three weeks before he got in and so had built that Bible on the wall of every season and encouraged him to throw pictures up on the wall to, you know, to see where he was going to go with that so then we could talk about, because we have to, you're going to fall over each other. You have to kind of hand backwards and forwards this baton. Great. Yeah, it's, it looked very consistent throughout. So it looked like you guys collaborated well. And then, you know, there was definitely, you could see the tonal shifts definitely about between the, you know, when it's just a suburban drama and then it becomes, you know, a little bit darker as you go along. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, yeah. And um, it was the weather that gave us that, really. I mean, the mm-hmm. weather's in the story. I just followed the story, really, in that respect. But. Yeah, it's funny. I don't remember. I read the book also, but I don't remember that being a through line. I feel like it was pulled out more for the script, which I think worked better. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Celeste doesn't tell the story of the rain on the windows or the frost outside, but the dates, she does tell the date and kind of expects you as a, as a reader to imagine what that might be or not. And, uh, and I guess that was the fact. But I, I mean, I definitely got into it because I knew that it allowed me a shift that was super exciting as a dramatic crushing down of this sort of the storytelling visually as well. And, you know, going back to something like Fincher and Seven and that sort of thing, the way that they rain to suffocate them in that police car and that sort of thing. It's like, hmm, how do we make this? There's the, poli- the, uh, the news reporters are outside Linda's house and, and, you know, the rain was pounding on the windows and it's just like they're stuck in this sort of bubble that they somehow found themselves in, even though it's their home. You know, it's incredible what a bit of rain on the window will do dramatically. So tell me about the final one where the, you know, the, the pyrotechnics and everything else. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, that everybody got involved then, like all hands to the pumps, because the way that breaks down, because it's the fire starts in an interior, which is on stage, and then uh, they find themselves outside the house, and then there's this huge inferno, and then the house collapses, and the next day it's a frozen black mess. Yeah, there's a bit of scratching of heads initially. We were on a scout back of our, our hero house, and um, so I took a p- couple of pictures on my iPhone and luckily I have a little sketch program on my iPad so I could sketch like, you know, where the flames might be. Like it starts in this bedroom, so it would spread here first and then it would go along the corridor and if it reached this corridor, then it would hit the, the staircase and that would mean that the staircase is full of air and so it would then collapse and this would, you know, make the shape of the house. And so me and Lynn literally stood on the lawn drawing out this, you know, just marking up a photograph I had on my iPad. Luckily, before I got little fires everywhere, I'd shot this massive Jack Daniels fire commercial. <laughs> so it was amazing. Like I've never shot real flames like it. They were enormous. They were probably 12 to 15 feet high. Some of the lengths of the flames were 20 to 30 feet long. And these are all like exercises that the the, um, the firemen of the Jack Daniels distilleries have to do to just think hey, if there's a fire at a Jack Daniels distillery it's just there's 10 warehouses of 15 floors and every floor has 5,000 barrels so do the math and think about the ethanol plus the flame and what the explosion might be <laughs> exactly so um so there's this uh, but they then made this Jack Daniels with bourbon called the fire and they made their own charcoal so we were shooting flames which felt like an inferno and the, the inferno flames really happen when you see it it's not just the flames coming up it's about the heat hitting a hot ceiling and then coming right back down and and making these sort of t- these turbines of hot air to pump and then accelerate the flames being built and so you needed the house 
that Reese is looking at to be as operatic, as dramatic, and as beautiful, so you could look at it for the longest time as you can. And there's nothing more beautiful and more operatic than I'd seen than the project I'd done like a week before I went to my interview. So that that was that was nice. That's good. Yeah, I was wondering if you'd had any real special effects prior to that. So yeah. So that's um, I, yeah, and I've done lots of visual effects before that. But what was great about the Jack Daniels is it actually was all real. I mean, they did it for real. I mean, we didn't do it for real. Hancock Park, we wasn't allowed. There's no insurance company that was going to help us out there. And um, so the way that got made was uh, we had lighting effects and flame bars. We were allowed eight foot flame bars. We had uh, six or eight eight foot flame bars, and then Danny Durr, my gaffer, put in lights inside the house that would be edged lights for the curtains the flames from inside uh, lights outside that would hit the gutters so the the flames would lick around the gutter and then work their way up the roof then they went to a burn stage and they made a maquette of the actual house which was a third size and they set that on fire and tilted it forward so that the flames would then work their way up the roof in the right way and then lick underneath the so there were fire elements we shot on the stage which were then stuck on the house. There were uh, physical lighting effects that we had on our actors and on the house on the, on the actual location exterior. And then what we could do on the stage, like six foot flame bars with the actors shooting through flames and, and heat haze. And, yeah, and smaller handheld flame throwers almost were what we use inside the set. And then as she comes down the corridor, there's a mixture of flame bars, VFX flames, and then I think the background is the burn stage as well. So it all has to get fitted together in this you know, beautiful jigsaw puzzle. Wow, that's crazy. That's, it's, it's always interesting to see how that stuff comes together. And as we're looking at you on Zoom, the picture behind you is, I believe, of that house, the very house being burned <laughs> up. And, uh, and it looks like the real deal to me. It look, you know, the effects and the, and the lighting and everything really do blend together pretty seamlessly. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. And uh, I mean, I love working with practical light and I love working with fire, um, just the quality of it as well. So I was so happy to be able to, you know, get some permission to use the flame bars inside the rooms because that really gave a sense of it. Awesome. Uh, so before we go, is there any place that uh, people can uh, find your work? I actually went on your website and watched a bunch of your work, so I already know the answer, but uh, tell us about your website. Yeah, I mean, I, I keep a website, update it when I can. Um, it's attached to my, in fact, a friend of mine put the website together on Squarespace, and uh, which has been awesome, super simple to use. But it's also integrated my Instagram feed on there as well. I mean, some a bit more of it's about my young son that I just have at the moment. It's not always cinematography, but it, every little bit of it is about life. And so you'll see the work that I do on set, but also... I mean, Instagram for me is kind of a notebook as well of, of things I find, things I think about, things I remember, places I remember. And, um, you know, flashback Fridays are always great. So like, oh, when I was in Iceland, these are the pictures I took. And, you know, sort of puts them out there and suddenly I'm getting phone calls from Iceland. Like, hey, you don't want to come and shoot a movie in Iceland. I think we're getting up and running soon. So um, uh, with the, the COVID quarantine, I think Iceland has everything on lockdown at the moment. So it's one of the few places in the world where I actually you can actually do a very controlled big shoot. Yeah, so, I thought um, Iceland had, had like had basically used contact tracing and rampant testing to minimize the threat almost immediately. They tested everyone in the country in the first four weeks, I think it was, yeah. and then they've just tested everybody who's entered it, entered the country since. Um, and everybody's on an app. I think it's an app. So everyone knows yeah. who's got what and what, what where different things are. But yeah, Iceland is a great place to be and i spent a good chunk of my career living and working there as well uh, because they would run out of crew quite quickly so i would you know head over and be a camera operator or first ac in iceland once a month for about three years so all of these things are you're adding to your toolbox all the time thank you so much for coming on it was great to meet you and uh, your work is amazing and i can't wait to see what you do next yeah i'm looking well evil can evil is uh, i've just finished prepping what? it before it all stops Cool. Well, thank you again for coming on, and uh, I hope that you get to make uh, the Evil Knievel biopic, and I can't wait to see it. <laughs> Cross everything. Cross everything. Hey, so that was uh, Trevor Forrest. That was awesome. And again, uh, Trevor, we're we're sorry for your loss uh, with Lynn Shelton, and 
you know, I, I just hope I hope our listeners go out and check out Little Fires Everywhere. It's a beautiful show, and uh, I hope you enjoyed hearing how uh, Lynn Shelton uh, and Trevor Forrest collaborated on the look of that of that show. Hey, Ben, uh, guess what time it is? It is time to pay those bills. <laughs> That's right. It's bill paying time. All right. Uh, let's let's get to it. Uh, hey, we have to thank our wonderful sponsor, Aperture. Aperture, who makes very, very fine, high-quality, cinema-grade uh, LED lights, have something new, and it's actually something that's little. They're coming out Is with... It? Yeah, they're coming out with something they're calling the 60D Daylight LED Light, and it is a small 60-watt uh, light, but it has an adjustable spot flood beam, and mm-hmm. uh, it's weatherproof, dust and water-resistant, and uh, runs off of a couple of little you know, DV camera batteries. So it's got a projection lens and it can be adapted to um, to all kinds of things with its uh, Bowens mount adapter. So it can use all the other stuff that other aperture lights. Sweet. It's a, it's a very clever little light and they actually haven't said exactly what the price is, but it's expected to come out between three and 400 bucks. And uh, if you need a small light with a cool optic that allows you to adjust, and there is a very famous lighting company out there, which I'm not going to say at the same time while we're talking about a Aperture product, but I will tell you that it looks very reminiscent of that that product. And it is about, <laughs> it is about I don't know, one-tenth the price, something like that. Maybe it's one-fifth the price, but yeah. So this is uh, very price aggressive, really, really high quality. And uh, by the time you hear this, uh, there is a pre-order up at Hot Rod Cameras. You can pre-order this light for 59 bucks. And uh, yeah, for it, 59 bucks, 59 bucks, you can pre-order. That's a deposit. Oh. It's a deposit. Like I said, it's between a three and four hundred dollar light. But still, uh, you put down almost 60 bucks, 59 bucks. And uh, in a few weeks time, maybe a few months time, you'll have this awesome, fancy light. Go to the Hot Rod Camera site. You can take a look at it. It is called the Aperture Lightstorm 60D. Hey, you know who did a live stream class with Aperture uh, about a week ago? No. Who's that? Larry Fong. Oh, that's right. Larry Fong. I'm really glad that Larry is doing stuff with them. I pushed Ted really hard that the person, he asked me who I thought should really be on their show. And I told him Larry, and I'm so glad that that they did that together. That's fantastic. Such, such a great guy. Yeah. Larry texted me a, a picture of, of himself on the live stream with uh, some Kong Skull Island stuff in the background. Nice. Very nice. And now, short ends. So, so Ben, I think we've reached the famed uh, short end time of the show. Famed, famed. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to start throwing in famed because you know, it's like it's yeah. like when you say like when you go to a place and it says world famous breakfast sandwich and you're like, I don't think they know shit about you in Bangladesh. Someone, buddy. someone from Canada ate there once, and now, <laughs> and now they're world famous. That's how it works. <laughs> so our famed short ends. Our famed short ends. Yes. Would you like me to go first, or yeah, would you like to go? Yeah, first? yeah. You break it on down for us. All right, because I'm going to make you sad because my short end is a podcast. <laughs> it does not make me sad. It's such a good podcast, and I think I think everybody listening to this would enjoy this podcast. It's called uh, The Wind of Change, and it is about the Scorpion song Winds of Change from 1989. And the I'm not going to call it a conspiracy theory because it's not like uh, a bunch of Alex Jones crazy town stuff. It's former CIA people speculate that it that song was actually written by the CIA to bring down the Soviet Union and it's it's the scorpion song you've definitely heard it oh I've heard it it starts with the whistling and uh I love (laughs) I love a good like nutball conspiracy story (laughs) and then and then I listened to the first episode and I was like, this isn't a nutball story at all. It's just an outrageously weird story because in order to tell it, they have to go into the history of the CIA using using musicians for covert ops. And you find out that like for real, Louis Armstrong uh, was sent overseas. Not, you know, they're not like sending them over to murder anybody or doing anything. They're sending them over to do concerts, but they're using the music as propaganda and also like how dangerous and red hot this is when the guy conducting the interviews talks to somebody at the CIA, they won't talk about it. Like immediately they go to the, I will not confirm or deny this. And you know, which is incriminating is all hell. And it's just a very entertaining investigative podcast. Uh, the first episode is wherever you get podcasts. And uh, I, I want to say that this gambit worked. The rest of them are on Spotify mm. for free 
You don't have to pay for premium Spotify, which I don't because I pay, already pay for Apple Music and I don't need to pay twice for literally the same service. But anyway, it, uh, I, I've been like binging my way through it and every episode is like filled with like crazy rock and roll stories and crazy weird drug stories and crazy CIA stories. And it's like all kind of mixed in this weird like tossed salad of espionage from the 80s and uh, i don't know it's it's just a delicious story and i think everyone should go listen to it it's brilliant and you can get it again on spotify for free you don't have to pay for premium spotify it's called i'm angry that i'm here right now talking to you because i could be listening to episodes of this that i haven't heard yet angry filled with rage filled with anger angry little man that i am All right. So uh, my uh, short end this week, my obsession is what we do in the shadows, the TV series. Have you seen this? I have not seen the TV series because big admission here. I just didn't didn't like the movie. Oh, my God. So badly. Okay, so and I love I love Taika Waititi's work and I and I, I don't. I don't want to say anything bad about it. It's not that it's bad. It's just one of those things. I started watching it. I'm like, this it, is not for me. It didn't work for you. Huh. Okay. No. Well, well, I will tell you that you might want to give the series a try anyway, because it's not the same as the movie. It, it lives in the same universe. The, the concepts are similar, but what happens and everything that sort of, uh, after that is its own thing and it's a wonderful thing it stands on its own merits and uh, I, I'm going to recommend that you give it a try especially because there is a uh, a character named uh, Colin Robinson and Colin Robinson is an energy vampire and he lives with the traditional vampires and if you've and I know you have met someone who you consider an energy vampire who just sucks oh, all have. the life force out of you. Uh, the, the Colin <laughs> Robinson character in this series is so great because we've all we've all known a Colin Robinson okay. or two. I will give so. it another shot. I might have just been in a bad mood. Here's the thing. I've never seen a Taika Waititi thing that I didn't like except that. And it wasn't again, it wasn't like I hated it. It was like, uh, it just isn't for me. Like it, that was sort of how I felt. And I, I, I watched it and I was like, yeah, it's all right. You know, it just, it just didn't hit my funny bone the way that I think it hit a lot of other people's. And so again, I'll give it, I might've just been in a crappy mood that day. Cause I'm a moody little prick sometimes. I'm going to go out on a limb and say to you that as the show has gone along, I think it's getting better. I think that now this next, this new season it's in right now, second season is better than the first season. So it's, it's Maybe wonderful. I'll just jump to the second season. I'll just go check it out. You could, you won't know the characters quite so much. You won't have all the backstory, but God, the situations and everything else are, are, are really good. And I should give a shout out to, to the, to the DP who's a gentleman named DJ Stipson. And uh, DJ has done a ton of stuff, including uh, I'm going back here. He and I share something uh, in common, although he did it much, much later. He worked on Power Rangers at one point. So, oh, yeah, Power I know. Rangers. that's cool. <laughs> yes, uh, much later than I did. But he's done a ton of other stuff uh, since then and does a very fantastic job on what we do in the shadows. And if you need some uh, comic relief in your life, you need something uh, a little bit lighter, a little bit uh, more manageable. Uh, what we do in the shadows, the 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 horror aspects of it aren't very horrific, and the comedy is front and center. You you. But what mean, if I want more horrific horror aspects? There there's a little bit of that in there, but there's also quite a bit of humor, and the humor right. the humor horror comedy I think you can get behind. Definitely a genre that I love. Definitely a genre that I think is hard to get right, and maybe I'm even too hard on horror comedy because it's often not done exactly to my liking well i'm gonna say this is comedy horror rather than horror comedy i'm just gonna oh. say that it's a little bit more on the comedy spectrum but that's you know. interesting yeah because i definitely like a good horror comedy but i don't know if i love a good comedy horror that might that might be my problem <laughs> well yeah give it a shot uh all, all right. right uh ben i think that's just about all the time we have so uh we are out of time we've never said that <laughs> we're saying it now <laughs> we're literally can- <laughs> never it's a podcast this could be any length we uh, want. all right this, for the next nine we hours just- we're going to be talking about <laughs> Bagels. I'm just gonna, I'll go full full uh, Andy Kaufman and read The Great Gatsby. All yeah. right, so Il- so Ilya, where can people find you online if they are looking for you? If they're looking for me, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. Actually, I feel very remiss. A few people have found me lately over at Hot Rod Cameras, but of course I had a million different things going on and was even uh, like down for the count sick for a little while, not COVID-19, uh, totally recovered. So I'm, I'm remiss. I'm behind on all my email correspondence. I do have to 
reach out to some podcast fans who have been contacting us and saying, hey, we love the show. So uh, thank you for, for doing that. And I promise I will get get through my, my backlog here. And, in the next and we'll day probably read your emails on the on the show. I think we point. will. There's there's a few that definitely deserve reading. Um, you can find me at benrockonline.com. There was actually a little, I won't call it drama, but I, I'm constantly checking to see the company that owns benrock.com. And uh, if, if anyone's in this deep into the show, they've probably heard me complain about this before, that a boat company <laughs> called Brunswick bought a motorboat company called Benrock, all one word. Actually, they, it's a longer story than that, but they own benrock.com, but there's nothing there. And so their uh, domain was set to expire at the end of April this year. So I was like waiting. And then they fucking renewed it. For nine years? Uh, Only for two years. But I was like, (laughs) okay, fuck this. And I emailed everyone there and said, can I please have my name? Like, I'm not a boat company. I'll sign a a waiver saying that I'll never compete with you in boats. Never. (laughs) It's not a thing I'm going to do. I I think there is actually some law on your side and you could go be a real dick about this if you wanted to get your your name. I think there is. I would like to be a real dick about this because they're not it's not like they have something on the website at all. There's nothing. There's not even a site there. If you You go to benrock.com, it just goes to nothing. During pandemic, you might actually reach someone important. Like all of those layers of middle management might be gone now. You might be able to go straight to the person who has the power to actually release this to you. Interesting. You should, you well, I'm going to look into the, into, the, into the legal thing you're talking about, too, yeah, because yeah. It, it, it's like, again, if the company was called Benrock and they were there first, I get it. Now that company doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. Hasn't existed since 2007. Yeah, yeah. There's, 13 years of, of, of no one using my name as a website. They're squatting on your name. Your good That's name. Annoying. Anyway, so Ilya, who do we need to thank today? Let's thank Ben Katz, first of all, editor. Uh, who's And he has been rolling with the punches as we're now sending him Zoom files and files from our own personal recording system, setups. And yeah. it's all it's it's all a giant tangled mess uh, to do it remotely. It's doing the Lord's work right there. It's really, uh, we, we can't thank Ben enough for, not just for not making us sound like idiots, but for making our audio sound better. Yeah, that's, that's, that's true. He's done a great job with that. Uh, we should also thank Alana Cody, our producer, our fine intrepid producer, who even today reached out to uh, Trevor uh, about coming on and, and talking a little bit about Lynn Shelton, which I think was actually a really important thing for us to do. A producer's work is never done, and uh, I know that's true with Alana. And lastly, we, as always, have to thank Kay Zalatrakshi, uh, who recorded all the music, wrote all the music that you heard on the on the show Case, who is probably not listening to this, but but possibly is ninety eight percent chance not listening. Uh, we, we we still love his work, and everyone should go check it out at musicbykays.com and uh, drop him a line or uh, hire him to do composing for your project. He's an amazing composer, and frankly, he'll also color grade for you and do visual effects. I'm not exaggerating; he does all those things for real, and he's great at them all. Let's get him on this week. Let's try and get him on as quickly as possible. All right. I think we should. Yeah, get let, him me, on. Let, let me let me uh, let me let me see if I can work some magic. You know how to reach him. Yeah, get, get, get. I, I, I I could reach him without really even extending my arm very much. I could just go to Facebook and send him a direct message. There is a soup can and a string that goes straight to his place. I can, t- I can tell. I when, when I started that sentence, it sounded like he's in the room with me. It, it, you know, I, I started looking at your your Zoom video. They're like, is Kay's secretly <laughs> over is there on, on the a room? futon? What's going on? That, that's how we get him to listen to the show is he comes here while we're recording the host rap. Anyway, uh, so that is it for this episode. And we will see you next week at the Cinematography Podcast. Like, subscribe, do something. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.